morning and welcome to Fret Buzz the Podcast. My name is Joe McMurray. And I am Aaron Sefcik. And today I'm really excited to introduce Jens Larsen, who is a jazz guitarist from Denmark, uh, who has become well known for his YouTube video lessons. Um, that's actually how I first discovered him. And he's written at least one book and he's put out many albums and we're really glad to have you, Jens. Well, thanks for having me as a guest. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and so you're Danish, but you're living in the Netherlands, correct? Yes, yes, that's true. So what what brought you to the Netherlands? Um, well, I wanted to. Um, I, I was studying um, I was studying mathematics and IT in Denmark, and uh, then while I was doing my bachelor, I decided that actually I wanted to study jazz guitar, even though I couldn't really play it, and. Um, that meant that I need to find a place where I could actually study that. If you're studying at the conservatory in Denmark, then it's a usually a very sort of broad thing. You have to do all sorts of styles. And there's no sort of really focused jazz education in the same way. So um, I found out while I was sort of preparing to, to find a school and stuff. I was also looking at Berkeley, but that was just way too expensive. Uh, so then I came across the conservatory in The Hague, which is kind of known also in Holland as being the bebop school. Uh, and I went there for some uh, master classes with uh, a person you may know, Barry Harris, a piano player, American bebop piano player. He played with Charlie Parker. He's, he's really old wow. now. But he used to come there every every year for a week. And I went to two of those. And then I also, when I was there, I met some other people there. And, um, and I could really feel like, okay, this is a great place to study. So then I applied there and I got accepted. And um, yeah, then, then it's like when you do a study somewhere, um, for a lot of people, I think you really build your network when you're there and you start having all these people you're playing with and and in the end it meant that also because I didn't have any financing for my studies, uh, I was making a living not very well, but I was making, uh, I was surviving on my gigs and stuff like that and I just knew that if I went back to Denmark, I kind of had to start over. So the lazy choice was just to, to stay <laughs> and then I stayed. Fair and now I have a family, I have kids, and I have a girlfriend, and so now I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> How long does it actually take you to get home? It's not that long. I mean, for, for the stage, you guys drive like uh, hours without even thinking about it. And uh, I can drive to where my parents live in, um, I think it's nine or ten hours with one or two breaks. Okay. It's not so, too bad. No. I'm the same distance from my parents, and I'm one state away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's also, I mean, Denmark and Holland, they're like two of the smallest countries in the world almost. <laughs> so, and they're not that far apart. There's a little bit of Germany in between. Then you're there. <laughs> so so is there a, um, a jazz guitar scene or a jazz scene in Denmark as well? Like a yes, strong so jazz scene that you could survive in if you chose to? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, some many of my colleagues, we were quite a lot of Danish people who went to the Hague to study. And um, a lot of them, actually most of them went back and they're making a living. I mean, they're not like everywhere else. Um, I think almost nobody is making a living only playing. So they're also going to be doing other things. Usually it's teaching. But um, but yeah, you can. there's definitely room for it. I think actually in some ways... Right now, uh, because of the, the last sort of crisis we had in 2009, 10, 11, uh, then the funding that was for, for culture in Europe in general, but especially in Holland, was really cut. So right now we have this thing that half the venues are gone mm. that we could play at. And in Denmark, it's a little bit better. So, uh, so in that way, it's maybe a more positive uh, place to be right now. I, I would imagine with your online presence you'd be able to to survive anywhere at this point yeah no i think i mean for, for that if, uh, in terms of of where i the way i make my money right now then, then yeah I, I could just go anywhere as long as i have wi-fi almost <laughs> like <laughs> or at least internet <laughs> so that's true but i mean um at the same time one thing is what i do online and, and, and writing books and making lessons and, stuff, and, and which is something I mean I do it because I love to do it but at the same time I, I also do still I'm still a guitar player so I need to play with people like yesterday I was playing first I was playing at 
some some function gig with some people and after that i was playing a, a concert at a jazz festival so it's like i mean i need to do those things as well otherwise it's, it's i'm not going to be stay motivated to keep on making all the lessons that's very true yeah yeah so you went to school and you studied bebop um you really focused on bebop like more of a 40s like charlie parker dizzy gillespie style is that no i don't think i mean when i started because it's such a long time ago when i started school it was in 1998 mm -hmm. and at that time um i think it was i think it was kind of still happening in the states as well but in denmark and in holland there was sort of this bebop revival so people were sort of going you would also see that winter masalis and and, and other people, they were really going back and, and, and paying homage to the tradition in, in a really strong way. And that was happening uh, in Denmark as well. So I came from teachers that were really traditional and really going back into to bebop. Also, like Barry Harris is sort of the essence of bebop teaching in many ways. Yeah. But in school, they were more, and it varies a little bit, but the, the guitar department was actually pretty progressive. Uh, and and the first thing I was told to do was to listen to Keith Jarrett and, and stuff, which is, I mean, it's not like like avant-garde in any way, and it's still pretty traditional, but it's not bebop. It's, it's Who did you say to listen uh, to Keith Jarrett? Oh, Keith Jarrett, yeah, yeah. So you went and you were taking all the classes just like a normal school, like ear training and piano, and you had your private lessons and. That sort of thing is that how it works? Yeah, it's it's, it's a master's. I have a master's in jazz guitar, so so it it, it fills those those. Where we have to do all the auxiliary subjects as well. Okay. Um, did, was there any point in your schooling? Did you go in? Um, was there ever a turning point where you felt like you really made a huge step in while you were in school? Was there something that you did you ever have like an aha moment or anything like that? Um, not in the school. Actually, I had that, like, when I was preparing to go to school, I was living in Copenhagen. And uh, at that time, because we had, I mean, we were in this sort of preparatory school, but it wasn't a really good school. And at the time, I was a saxophone player that's also playing in my band. We were we were roommates. And uh, we, we were just trying to practice and learn, and we actually couldn't do anything almost. And then I met a bass player, and we decided that the only way we could actually get anywhere was to start playing in the streets. So we learned, uh, what we learned? We learned like three, well, two and a half standards. And then we went playing in the street. And, and then later on, I realized that actually, because we, we just kept on playing a lot in the street. And then, then when I started at the conservatory, I already had a really substantial repertoire of like 50 or 60 standards and songs that I could play harmonized and, and could just perform. Mm. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but that was actually a huge advantage for my studies also that just meant I had a ton of experience that other people just didn't have. So the turning point for me, which I think you also will hear reflected in the way that I teach, is to learn songs. <laughs> That's essential for, for anything you want to learn in terms of music. You want to learn the songs that are the music. That it, it seems so obvious. Absolutely. I, I get stuck. I'll, I'll find a tune like, like Misty. I always go back to Misty. Hmm. But like when I learn a new, a new sort of line or concept, you know, Misty, all the things you are. I have several tunes that I, I always go to because I know the progression so well that I, I feel comfortable being able to use that new concept in every possible spot. And I think knowing a few tunes incredibly well, it's probably more useful than knowing a lot of tunes poorly. Definitely. I mean, there's, there's, there's some things you need to sort of work towards knowing, really knowing a tune, you know, where it's it's like when... Uh, for I think for a guitar player, you get to the point where you say, "Well, if I know the melody of this song, I think the melody is the most important because, like, you play one place with some people, they play one set of chords, and uh, the next gig they're going to be playing something else, and you just kind of have to catch it on the fly." Mm -hmm. And um, that means that you really need to know the melody. And and for instance, you need to know probably how to play the melody in all positions of the neck and stuff like that, where you're playing it. Actually, and that doesn't mean that you need to know it in all places on the neck. It means that you need to know it so well that you can kind of play it by ear everywhere and not mm -hmm. worry about it. I think that's that's sort of the thing. And, and there are a lot of things where that were, and that's of course important. And then at the same time, like you say, because I have the same, I also have to just 
study tunes was like if I'm learning something new then there's gonna be it, it varies through the years but there's always gonna be some tunes you return to it like okay, I need to try this out on on this one like ladybird is something I use all the time for some reason <laughs> yeah I actually lazy lazy bird was one that I no yeah. which one's the culture one ladybird I, I lazy bird lazy bird yeah that was the one when I was in school my my teacher had me do everything over of that. We've actually had him on. Sean Purcell has been on. Yeah, I heard that one. Episodes. Yeah. yeah. He had me do everything over Lazy Bird. It was great because it had, you know, several quick 2.5 and 2.5.1 changes. So with learning standards, I, I find that if you have a large repertoire, it can be hard to have everything prepared all at once. Um. How do you go about like maintaining your set list? How do you go about, do you just pick a new tune every day? How often are you learning new things versus reviewing old tunes? Oh, that's a good question actually. I think, um, I think I don't, I don't, sometimes I know that if I'm playing with certain people that probably I'll have to play this in this tune and then I'll, I'll just go through it or wherever I feel like it. Or maybe I was at, at a gig and then I played a song that I didn't really know mm -hmm. and then I'm like okay now I want to practice that and then but I have to be to be completely honest like some tunes are just kind of drifting away because if you didn't play it for like four or five years it's, it's it's not in your system in the same way you know then you need to play it a few times and you can take it back but I also think I, I've studied with a teacher who knew pretty much every song I could think of mm -hmm. and the way he put, would prepare for a gig would be really just to sit down and then just play through the tune a few times and, and just, oh yeah, this goes here and this goes there. And then, then, then he would be prepared and that. So I actually tend to kind of approach it like that. If I'm, I mean, if, if I know that I can get the tunes in advance, sometimes you don't really know. I mean, there are gigs where you don't know what you're going to play. And then you just have to bring an eye reel or something in a, in, in case, in an emergency. Like the, yesterday I played a, um, I played the concert that I played was, also, just like something I recall for on the same day, and um, I only knew the drummer. I didn't know anybody else. And the first tune we walk up on stage, and they call it a tune I don't know because it's witchcraft. I had played it before, but it's like ten years ago, and I don't know it by heart. <laughs> so that was like, oh, okay, yeah. Well, then, <laughs> then I just put my phone here, read the chords, and then uh, hopefully I don't have to do the first solo. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's just the way it goes. And I, I think it's it, it's not useful to beat yourself up too much if there's a tune you don't really have ready you know or try to have everything ready just like the stuff you want to play you need to have that ready and then see how much of it it is uh, that's that's how i see it at least so you didn't have to play the melody of witchcraft no okay that's a good thing i didn't because i really yeah. don't know i don't I know how it goes i still don't know how it goes yeah yeah so if you would you ever bring like a, a real book and sight read something like that yeah no problem but i just didn't have it with me because i didn't uh it, it was so short notice that i just didn't have it i didn't go home i was Fair coming enough. directly from another gig oh wow so, so it, um and also it was supposed it was sort of a jam session thing so i didn't actually expect them to call a song that i didn't know which but you don't you never know <laughs> that mm -hmm. was that's just exciting so that can happen and then I was, and then I just thought, well, okay, I have I real if it goes. I mean, of that whole set, that was the only tune that I completely didn't know, so I had to read it. And then the rest, I I, I either solo knew or uh, or really just knew. So that's that's okay. And then you still have this thing that even though I know it, I don't know what changes they're playing. That has to. Well, they but they don't. They didn't rehearse either. They don't know either. So everybody, everybody's in the same place. So. You mentioned not wanting to take the first solo. Is that just so that you have more time to try to understand the chord progression while you're playing it that that extra several times? Yeah, kind of. It's just hearing the song. You know, you just want to hear the calls and you just have an idea. Like, and because the first time you're reading a song, I think you want to look at it and then understand the form. So if you, you have an idea about, okay, this is like a 32 bars and it's uh, split like this, or it's like an ABA, or it's split in two. Or it's called like an ABAC uh, form. 
and then then you understand it from that and then you have sort of some basic things to sort of latch onto and then you increase sort of the level of detail along at least that's how i work with it and um which witchcraft has sort of a strange form so so it's it's just useful just to have able to be able to hear it like the bridge is twice as long as normal and the last a is shorter and so like there's a few things where you're like okay so if you just heard it before it's just easier absolutely yeah i think i think that's valuable just for for our listeners to to hear i don't i doubt that i don't know how many of them are are you know professional jazz guitarists or even um jazz guitarists at all but so i think it's helpful for people to hear you know to get inside the mind of a jazz guitarist and see what's actually going on and see that it's not all witchcraft no <laughs> luckily since i don't know it <laughs> but yeah no that's too i mean it, it's also um i think sometimes with with for people who don't play jazz it seems like it can seem kind of scary because uh because of the way that you're thinking in all kinds of music and also because the way that you play is kind of colored by what you need to do like if you're playing rock music and you're you're used to sort of thinking maybe in one scale sound or one mode for a whole song, then then the whole idea of just having to change with every chord and stuff like that seems like a gigantic amount of work. And actually it isn't if you practice like that, but you, you do need to build that skill. And and that I, at least I run into that one quite a lot. I think that it's like um, the people asking like, oh, but how can you analyze which of the triads do you have to know? You have to think about all the diatonic triads on every chord and every, and it's like, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> we did that when we were practicing. Now we just use it and we don't think about it because that's how it works. That's mm -hmm. yeah. Like Pat Metheny in an interview was asked, well, how can you play so freely on all the things you are? Because you're as free on that one as everybody else on 12 up loose. And he just said, well, I played it so much that for me, it's like a 12-hour lose. <laughs> it's, it's about building that skill set. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and which is true. I mean, you have him playing that song since, I mean, there are recordings from the 70s and he's still playing it. So. Isn't that, I think I read somewhere that that's, that tune has been recorded more than any other jazz standard in history by more different people? That could that could very well be. I I don't know for sure which one is the most recorded, but that will definitely be a candidate. It's definitely a, it's it's a journey of a tune to to improvise improvise through. Yeah, and there's also it seems a little bit like I don't know if this if it's both like, but there there was sort of the way I viewed jazz history. There were all these versions of it that were sort of defining for a lot of people. So you had the um, I think first the Schofield version on flat out. Where he's where you really get Schofield playing, turning the intro into some sort of alto dominant blues jam, mm -hmm. and and also just being for the rest really Schofield ish on it. And then you have Pat Metheny playing at tempo three hundred and fifty or something. And then you also have like the Brad Miller version in seven with all the modulations and stuff. So you kind of have for me that it's been a a song that's also been a part of like the different periods of jazz that I've been busy with, really a lot. Um, so that way, yeah, it's, it's and also because it's surprising, yeah, because uh, Kern, the, the the composer, thought it was too complicated for it to really become an, an a, his song, and then he hated all the jazz versions. Awesome, huh. I think he just hated jazz actually. So, <laughs> did he think we were corrupting his beautiful, his beautiful composition? Fair enough. I mean, I, uh, I guess we are. <laughs> we do our best. Yeah, <laughs> even Michael Jackson sung that when he was young this version okay. of him as a kid it's much more of an r&b kind of kind of groove okay i need to check that out. i never heard that <laughs> yeah it's fun i think that it's uh with my jazz duo we do it kind of like that because if we're at a place you know more like a brewery or a bar mm -hmm. it goes over well with people yeah you guys, so you play in a duo with a bass player or with another guitar player? Or? Uh, with a vocalist and flute player. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, it's a really, I have a looping system. Ah, okay. And I can, that way I get the chance to, to solo a little bit. And yeah, it works great. 
Ah, cool. I, I mean, that's, that, I find that the duo gigs for me, but I don't use a looper, but I find those like really hard work. I do quite a, a lot with vocalists like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but so a three-hour duo gig like that, then, then I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. I think some some purists might might frown on the looping pedal, but it it's really fun. I just enjoy having having that and having the you know the drums and bass with me. Yeah, it frees me up to do so much more. Yeah, no, I mean I think it's also and there's always going to be uh, some amount of of uh, not being willing to accept things. I mean, having done now that I now teach at the conservatory where I was, where I studied, and um, there sometimes in the commission we've also had like discussions, also because it is the bebop school where other people would be joining the commission and then have the idea like that anything that goes in between the guitar and the amplifier, except for a cable, is wrong. Having that discussion mm-hmm. in a commission is like sometimes a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> this is not <laughs> this is not 1965 anymore. Yeah, <laughs> and West Montgomery used the tremolo to you know take it easy. Mm-hmm. So, so that, there's always going to be some of that. I mean, it's yeah. Luckily, music evolves. I think actually, I think jazz is supposed to change. Mm-hmm. Jazz is changed. It has to evolve. Otherwise, it's just going to be museum music. It's just going to be something where we're like paying homage to a tradition and of course tradition is important but it's not the only thing and the things that at least for me were always exciting were the things that were changing tradition mm. that's also why somebody like Pepinthini is interesting somebody like Schofield or Kurt Rosenwinkel always Montgomery because they are taking it in a new direction yes agreed all all great points I mean like you said I think that jazz is is an ever evolving thing. I, I I am not a purist, and though I do understand the the meaning and the idea behind it, uh, but I do I am of the thought that jazz is is an ever evolving thing. Um, I mean, just look at it fifty years ago to what it is today, and guys like Matheny and Schofield and whatnot like that, and what they've done for the sound. Um, yeah. it's it's pretty amazing. It really is. Yeah, I think and I think that was always the case with jazz. That was what made it. What what's kept it alive? Yeah. I think I think the the whole idea of uh, what was that quote? Um, Tradition is peer pressure from dead people. Mm. So <laughs> so that's yeah. I mean you know that, that, that it's it's important that, that the music keeps moving to stay even if it's still becoming more of a more more and more of a niche. Mm. I, I'm, I'm not even sure that's really a problem for the music itself. Actually, it's it's just it's mostly a problem for for how you how you manage to make a living working with it yeah. more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, music changes so much throughout the years. I mean, I think you're sometimes forced to try to kind of reinvent yourself as a musician within your genre. Um, I know we've talked about uh, Herbie Hancock quite a, quite a few times and, and how he's gone through many different changes. I mean, I just look at something like Headhunters, but then you look at something like Rocket. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Which, wow. yeah, and then and him and, and also Schofield and also like 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 their their employer um, Miles mm-hmm. were the masters of doing this, and that that was the key to to their career, and also in many ways the key to their creativity. I think. Yeah. So in one way you can say, well, it's it's not something you do because you need to make money, but at the same time, it's also something you need to do. To not just get bored with your own cliches, you know. Even if you you play great things, at some point you're gonna get bored with them. <laughs> that's that's just how it goes. Yeah. So yeah. With this development um, of, you know, you think about Miles Davis going from playing with Charlie Parker and playing bebop to playing, you know, what, was it his kind of blue album that came out that really changed the course? It seems silly to, for anybody to really think that it shouldn't progress when the people they're looking up to were, you know, some of the greatest innovators. Uh, yeah, but I mean, at the same time, I guess if you start mixing in elements of, of music that you don't like, the reason why we, for us, it's so easy to understand maybe why Headhunters is great, because we understand Herbie Hancock and we've heard him with Miles, but we maybe also understand a lot of R&B, a lot of James Brown, and a lot of those things that they borrowed from. And that means that we're just mixing stuff together that we like, and then that's really easy. Now, if you're coming from another period where you're like, 
I don't like James Brown or R&B in any way, and you don't have that mix, then of course that's going to get difficult. And that I do see that. I mean, that, I see discussions like this in in in, sorry, in in the comment section of my videos very often also, and, and that's. Uh, yeah, that, that that's of course also a part of the game, but I think it has to do with that. If, if for for a lot of the things that that works well, it has to do with whether we're mixing things that we are kind of accepting all of it, mm. and then that's yeah, that can be tricky. It's actually a really interesting point. La I live in Virginia Beach, um, Virginia, and last night I went out to the oceanfront, and they they're having this big, I think they called it the American Music Festival, but it's just there's a free there are free concerts on the beach on several stages, but one stage had has a a big '90s rock band. Uh, they were the 311 is the name of the band, and um, you know I grew up listening to them as a teenager, and so they've I think they're all about 50 now, but their early music was more pure rock. And last night they had a rapper, and. It's just interesting you said that, and I, I remembered that I, I didn't really like the rapper. It felt like it just didn't fit with the... I felt like it took away from the rock music. So I, that's exactly what you're saying about the jazz music and blending blending newer styles. I guess I just didn't grow up loving rap, so I don't like the mixture. Yeah, I mean, that could be. I mean, but of course, there's also just the chance that that sometimes when you're trying something new, then some of it will work and some of it doesn't work. I mean, that's... That's true for for everything. So it could also be that that combination actually doesn't work that well. Hmm. That, that's hard to say. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that. Uh, that that is only in how you experience it, obviously. But, but yeah, it's, it's true. It, you need to you need to have uh, kind of like both things. I think I think to be open to it. At the same time, I don't know. For me, uh, one thing that I kind of discovered through jazz and that I came to really late was bluegrass, hmm. because I mean in Europe until. I don't know, until 10, 15 years ago, I don't think I'd ever really heard about it. It's like it, it didn't exist over here. And then there was only like country and Western and country and Western was, we never really, I never really got that somehow. And that was also, now that was also just because the European version of it is, is very cozy and very, very sort of middle of the road and, and there are no sharp edges in it and stuff like that. And I don't think that's necessarily true for all country, but that was just the stuff that I was exposed to and therefore I didn't like it. And, and and then later, like the whole, all this acoustic music, which actually fits so well with, with more sort of the, the traditional jazz thing, because bluegrass is such a great acoustic, acoustic music also. Mm. That's been, for me, it's really been something that, I can't say that it really has had, had an impact on my music, but it's something I've been listening to really a lot and enjoying, which is really great, where it's like the mix is taking me out and, and getting me into a new genre. And this, I think that really came from Especially Bill Frisell huh. from his Nashville album. Bill Frisell did a he did an actual bluegrass album. He did an album with only bluegrass musicians. I think he did. It was more like um, what's that band called? It's called Union Station. Okay. I think, uh, I think it was most of those guys, and um, and also his his bass player in the trio for a long time was also doing both jazz and bluegrass all the time. So there was. There's, there really was that, that connection very strongly, yeah. And also, if you hear him do, um, if you hear him do solo concerts, I think he still usually does like a few bluegrass tunes. Okay. So I think yeah. it's, it's incredibly fun music. Oh my goodness! Yes. I uh, I grew up in my hometown. Um, oh, what's his name? Earl Scruggs is from the town that I grew up in. So we have a museum dedicated to Earl Scruggs and bluegrass music now. It's in downtown Shelby, North Carolina. Um, yeah, my mom used to volunteer up there. Okay. But yeah, I, so there's always lots of bluegrass music when I go home. And and uh, actually, Victor Wooten, he was uh, he was one of those guys that hated bluegrass music, and then somebody had him actually play bluegrass, and now he plays with uh, Bella Fleck. Bella Fleck, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. That's that's really strange, actually. He seems like such an open guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, in his, in his book, uh, The Music Lesson, he talks about, like, he he looked down on it originally, and then he actually played it and learned how much nuance there was and how much improvisation. And, yeah. yeah. I don't know yeah. how early on in his career he realized that, but... 
Originally, he wasn't a fan. Yeah, no, I mean, I can imagine. This. So it has to do with what you're exposed to. Like I said, um, the, uh, the the country in Western I was exposed to was not not really worth checking out. And I still think it's not worth checking out. And I also still then later found out that there is actually stuff that's worth checking out. And I think I found that with any actually with any kind of genre. For me, uh, having done like an education that was like really sort of hardcore jazz, and then when I was done. Uh, actually, in the last year of studying, I started teaching at a music school. And then that meant that I had to learn a lot of Metallica songs and a lot of <laughs> ACDC, and, which, was, which was really okay. And it was music I wasn't actually that familiar with because that was, that was not what I grew up on. Right. So, um, so first I was, I was thinking, well, okay, that's maybe not that interesting. But, but then as you start to dig into it, then I found that I really loved it, actually. So, so now, then I, again, you can get like, okay, now I've checked out a lot of, um, a lot of thrash metal and a lot of uh, hard rock that I didn't really have as much of a connection to because I kind of skipped that. I went from, uh, from sort of the, the in English indie stuff to to Hendrix and blues, and then I was into blues, and then I went to jazz. Kind of, that was what happened. So. So in, in, in sort of coming back to, to that and then just really discovering like how, how ACDC is actually a fantastic band in many ways and also how Metallica and then also just all the other stuff because I've, I've been playing with one of the drummers I played with uh, was from Sweden here in, in The Hague and he was actually the drummer of, and I forget what the band's, one of the first death metal bands so from Sweden. Ooh, so, um, I wonder what that would be. What? I wonder what that band was. <laughs> That's they never got really, really famous, but then the people in that band went on to become famous in other bands. But they were like, he was in there when he was like 17 or something. Like that. And actually, they didn't know anything of what they were doing. It was just like loud and fast and, I wonder and what technical. And so is, is I've heard a lot of stories about it, but I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, I don't know what band it is. I have to ask him again. Was it be uh, In Flames? No, 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 no. It's, no. it's way before that. Okay. It, it's, it's really a lot earlier. So like eighties, it's really from the from the the period where like when you made a demo, it was only on tape and stuff like that. It's, it's really a long time ago. But he was then then he was saying because I was talking about how I was uh, checking out all the all the master puppets and, and and trying to figure out like which Metallica albums were the better ones to give to people and which Megadeth was interesting to teach mm. to the kids and stuff. Mm. And then um, then I actually had like whole lectures from him with the, the history of metal. So I learned really a lot about that. And I also got like Opeth and Arch Enemy and you know, I mean, he's Swedish, so he gives me all the Swedish bands, of course. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, so that, that's how I got in, into, how I know, learned something about it. I think this is, a, I mean, I, I guess I have that in, in me that I also just like checking out new stuff and learning something about it. And then you also have the other thing because it's very often you can frown upon genres that you don't know. That was actually my point that I was forgot to get to, but uh, but the, you will have that in the beginning if you don't understand Metallica or if you don't understand metal at all, you're just going to say, "Well, that's that's just people playing power chords really fast. Mm. It's boring." But um, if you if you start really digging into it, then you understand what makes it great and what is good about it in that genre. You do need to know a genre to really realize if something is good and good or not. And I think that goes really from for any kind of music. It, it doesn't matter if it's hip hop or EDM or country or bluegrass or whatever. And I've always had that. Whenever I start digging into stuff, I get amazed at, at things and new details. Um, and and that's, that's always been... And actually, this just in, in as far as I can open my mind to it, I guess it's also a personal thing if you can get to, get to do that. And you don't always get to do that with everything. But if you do, then it's really rewarding. But that's been my experience, at least. I think it's important um, periods throughout your life that you do expose yourself to. I mean, I, I'll say it on a personal level. Um, I will always have gone through life pushing myself to listen to things that I may not enjoy. Um, I know for me in jazz, <laughs> when I was 17, 18 years old, uh, I had definitely, my vision was very, you know, <laughs> focused in terms of what I was listening to. 
Um, but I'd I'd heard it all before. I definitely listened to the albums over and over again. I knew all the words, all the chords, all the you know all the progressions. Um, and at that point in my life, uh, I I was brought up more with smooth jazz than anything else. Um, not so much your standards or um, all the greats. So I I went out of my way at that age to force myself, even though I wasn't really into it at the time. But I at least wanted to have that background, that foundation of what jazz was, and start to tune my ear. Um, in terms of what was going on. I may not have understood what exactly was going on, but at least I could start getting in my ear and starting to understand it on a, you know, on an oral level. Um, and I'm glad I did. I, I'm, that's one of the best decisions that I've ever made is, is kind of going through that process of exposing myself to something that I may not have been used to. Uh, and now, obviously, many, 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 many years later, uh, it's one of my favorite genres. I mean, I just... I love the sound of it. <laughs> so I think it's important for all people. I mean, I had this discussion with a few of my students this past week where, you know, even with you were talking about like a metal, um, he was talking about how he's, you know, in in his life, he, he's really interested in kind of expanding his metal sound. He's very, you know, he's got the sound that he really likes, but opening it up to more that he not may not necessarily like, but at least he wants to expose himself. And I, I love when I hear a student say something along those lines saying, okay, I, I want to kind of force myself to, to take on something new and, and something fresh, uh, even though I may not be used to it or may even, I may not even like it, um, but I kind of want to take that in. And that's, that's exciting for me to hear a student say that kind of a thing. That's, that's, that's nice. Uh, definitely. I think like if you if you're also looking, but also just the fact that you're looking, mm. that you're really looking to discover new things for a student is also something. The, actually, the other way around is also some of the worst things where, and that's also within a genre that sometimes you will have people just cut off and go like, I don't like this, I don't want to learn it. Mm. And that can be, uh, especially if you come across it, like if you're teaching at, at a higher level school, that can be dangerous for a student. That's a very, very dangerous attitude to get into. I agree. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it, no matter what level you're at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, true, true. I, mean, I, I, that's one of the main things. I, I, you know, one of my students where we'll do a collaboration and we'll talk about maybe a song that we want to cover, and we'll we'll talk about you know whatever song it is. I like to have all my students kind of give a list, and we go through that list of songs. And there's always it's inevitable that where there's always one student's like, I don't want to play that, and I don't like it, and I'm like, yeah. You can learn so much. You may not enjoy it now, but going through the process, you may or may not like it, but you will definitely learn something from that process and you'll grow as a musician. And to have that kind of attitude of, I just don't want to and I don't like it, that's just not good. (laughs) I found in my own studies, I mean, I was much more of a, a rock player and then. When I started learning jazz, I felt like it it made my rock playing so, so much better. Mm. I mean, I don't need to play. It's sometimes fun to have a little overdrive on the guitar and play a bebop line somewhere in the middle of a rock solo, but just like targeting the right notes is, and knowing the fretboard, jazz gives you an enormous edge. Mm. Like you can, you can really bring out the best of a chord progression. That's true, but at the same time, you have to wonder if it's really necessary to learn jazz to, to be able to do that. Probably not, but I think that having learned jazz, I think it's invaluable I mean, to my to no, my I mean, to learn jazz, you need to be able to do it, so then you then it's, it's easy to do it. Um, but at the same time, you would imagine that, but yeah, I guess there are less examples of it in, in a way, but it, because it's less clear. In that way, I actually found that was a revelation for me with, with with, with the country that when I then started to just listen to it and check different things out, then I realized that um, that actually they were playing the changes really clearly in a way that I was not used to because like Clapton doesn't really play changes and neither does Pink Floyd or uh, Hendrix doesn't either really, you know, so it's like I, I wasn't in the same way aware of it. You could sometimes hear it in blues. Most of the time you don't, you don't really hear it. Like there'll be a few places, and then they'll follow the course, and then the rest of the solo they don't. So, so in that way, that I thought that was that was really like, oh, actually, this sounds like bebop with triads. That's 
hmm, where did this come from? They really played like this is this chord and this is this chord. And and also when you then start checking out lessons on it, you really hear them thinking like that, also thinking in chords. And actually it's just parallel. It's, it's completely the same. They have their own number system. And so you can tell I don't really know anything about it. I just checked out some some YouTube lessons and stuff. But it it is so similar in so many ways. And I, I would say like a good place to learn to learn a similar skill would, would actually be to, to check out some country. I wanna I wanna jump back to jazz and getting into it, if that's all right. I would <laughs> I would like to so I have one student in particular that I'm he's a high schooler and he's been learning rock guitar mostly from me, some acoustic finger style, but he's he's developed an interest in jazz and he is I mean, he's he's a really talented kid, and I've got him playing Misty, and we've started. He's got his his full voicing, his low voicing chords, um, and he's started to play arpeggios over the the changes. Um, I'm I'm curious as to how you would approach. I mean, I've seen you have lots of videos about getting started playing over the changes, but taking a young student. Say, is that the progression you'd go, like learning the chords and learning the the arpeggios and maybe learning bebop scales after that, or you have your pentatonics lessons using pentatonics? I don't start. Or... I don't usually start with. Uh, I mean, stuff like this really depends on where the student is at, right? If the student is really at home in pentatonics, then that's something you want to use also. But in most cases, where and, and what I do at the conservatory is that I teach at the young talent department. So that means I have like the, the 11, 12, 13 year olds who don't really, they, they kind of know to how to play a little bit of guitar and they're interested in playing jazz and maybe they've learned like one jazz tune, but they usually don't come from playing other genres that much. It, that will happen as well, but mostly they're just, they're just really starting. And then usually what I start with is actually that I try to take, I would take a piece that's simpler than Misty. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is just because it's changing a lot of different scales. You, re you really do need to follow a lot of changes. And in the beginning, I think it's better if the student learns to just open their ears. And that means that I'll take songs that, that they can sort of survive on, even if they're just sort of running up and down a C major scale on Take the A Train. Mm -hmm. Because that's going to work for most of what is happening. And then you can point to one note and go, OK, can you try and hit that note? at this place and then when they do that they will hear and they will experience how it is to actually hit the changes so in that way you're because i don't want to give them and especially with with, with younger kids you don't want to give them too much to think about i mean the whole analysis thing and, and then thinking about how how you do something and figuring it out that works really great if they're like adults but if they're this young then then, then i think it makes much more sense to really try and and, and i mean they are young, so they have more time. So just be patient and just give them the chance to really hear it. And then they don't have to think about it. And you can teach them to think about it later. But if they can start hearing it, then they also will start uh, responding to the music in, in a much more natural way. Because what you have, and we will see that if you're teaching it also, also with jazz, that you can teach them to understand it and then they know what they play is right. But it doesn't really sound like melodies. They can't really make melodies with it because they don't hear it, and and they don't really hear if the phrasing sounds right either because it's 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 coming from thinking. It's not coming from feeling. It's not something that they're really in that way aware of. And and when I'm when I'm teaching kids, I, I try to get that in there. So so very often I will do um, a song like Take the A Train or Blue Bossa, and then it's gonna maybe start with a pentatonic scale if they know a pentatonic scale. Otherwise, it's just gonna be like one one major scale and then gradually go okay so the second chord there's an f sharp that's that's that fret <laughs> that's like that's there mm -hmm. hit that here okay you know and then then we just do that for a few weeks as well and also just give them small phrases play something like can you play this just open their ears get used to to really taking stuff in by ear but it's a it's also a question of how old he or she is because already if they're like 15, it's very different than if they're 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. So then already with a lot of the older ones, you need to explain more. And, and that's just, they're already used to thinking and working and learning like that. But the young ones, you really, you can, you can really approach it differently. 
and I think also in a much more natural. I really have students where, and also have had students where they don't, they don't really know how to analyze songs, and they don't always play the right notes, but always sounds like jazz. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like because there's more to jazz than playing the right notes. It's also just that you can play something and the phrase just sounds like a jazz phrase, and they can they can do that in a way where it's it's actually quite incredible. And then, of course, they need to fix the other stuff as well. But otherwise, it's not gonna <laughs> it's not gonna work out. But yeah, it's, it's, it's. I think that was for me that was really surprising to see that that actually also really existed because I never, I don't think I ever really came across that when I was. I mean, I was just older, so I didn't really see all the young talent thing. But, so yeah. they're actually actually playing good phrases, but kind of over the wrong changes, or yeah, usually it's just not in the changes. So they will play good phrases and. Uh, they don't, they don't really nail the changes, or they don't really fit with the changes. So if it's an E flat and there's an F seven, then they are not going to hit the A. Okay, but it's still going to sound like a jazz phrase. Mm. It's just still going to have that right swing feel and and the accents and all that. That's all all going to be there because they've already picked that up by ear by just playing a few bebop themes and stuff. And that's another thing that's also so that can also be a good thing to teach somebody. Um, to teach them some some simple solos, maybe also solos that they can learn by ear. For instance, if they play, uh, if they are really used to playing pentatonic scales, then a solo like um, Chitlin's Konkan from um, yeah. Kenny Rowe, all pentatonic, pretty much. And it's actually so easy that you can, with a few, I mean, you can also kind of fit it into like a box one minor pentatonic. Mm -hmm. So you can you can pick up some stuff there and, and then just get people started listening and trying to learn by ear. And that's, I mean, you're doing them a huge favor if you can get them to do that at an early age because they can develop so much with that. I love that tune. That was one of the tunes that made me want to start learning jazz. Yeah. It was that whole Midnight Blue album. It's fun, but you didn't, because I heard that from Steve Ray Wong. I didn't hear it from Kenny Burrell. Oh, yeah, his is awesome too. And then there's like one place in that solo, and then he plays like a a G seven flat nine. Mm -hmm. and that for me was just like this magical moment where he plays something really mysterious, and it sounded great. And I I figured out what it was, and I could never use it anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you hear Kenny Burrell is apparently pretty sick? He's been on on a leave from UCLA for quite some time. Oh no. There's a big yeah. article in the newspaper. But there's also been this thing that, that there was a crowdfunding campaign, and now they're not sure if it's if it's really true or there were some doubts about it. So, yes. so I don't know. I actually donated to that campaign, but I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, how, how old is he now? He must be, like, close to 90. Yeah. I mean, he was playing with back in the 50s, wasn't he? And I think he even did. A, did he do something with Ellington as well? Also, at some point, hmm. I think. But he, at least he was. He was really. He was in the Benny Goodman sextet, so sort of close to a few, like a few guitar players between him and Charlie Christian already, almost. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it says he's eighty-eight on Google. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible that he's. He's been around that long, but he's, I love his blues, um, the way he can play even over a, you know, a normal jazz tune, not a blues tune. And he, but he, he puts this, it's, it's very bluesy, whatever he does. And I think it makes it a good, for people who are looking to get into jazz or have listened to jazz before and didn't like it, I think it's a good uh, stepping stone to developing a, a taste for it. No, I think it's uh, especially if you're coming from styles that are at least closely blues related. Definitely, and then that's that's and that, I think for a lot. I mean, I don't know if it's still like this, but that was where where everybody came from when I started. And anything, but I mean, I'm also I'm from a small town and from a long ago. So in Denmark, where there was I couldn't have electric guitar lessons when I was a kid. There was no electric guitar lessons, so I didn't have that in the beginning, and I didn't. We didn't have electric guitar books in the library and stuff like that. So I didn't. Wow. We just did stuff off our records and radio. Mm -hmm. And you just had an acoustic guitar? 
Yeah, and then I worked like when I was seventeen. I, I worked all summer to to afford uh, like a really cheap Ibanez guitar, <laughs> which actually was stupid that I bought that one because it was like a heavy metal guitar, and I actually wanted a blues guitar. But there were yeah, the, the, it was like I could choose between two colors, and I didn't know anything anyway, so <laughs> I just bought that with a Floyd Rose. Horrible. <laughs> 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 not so much that the Floyd Rose is horrible, but just like the guitar was just cheap. It were at the the level of at my that's my impression now. The level of um, uh, of, of guitar of, of what a guitar what, the quality of guitars is what I'm trying to say. The level of the quality of guitars for what you get for your money now is like so much higher. Now, if you buy like my my youngest son plays guitar, so I have bought actually this. Well, you can see it in the podcast, but there's like a, a, a black Ibanez mm-hmm. behind me. And and that's from my son. And, and we bought that for um, 300 bucks. And and that's actually a really solid instrument. And it sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. So the hamburgers could maybe be a little bit better. But I mean, it's 300 euros. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that why you... Because you use your Ibanez what is it, an AS700 or something? It's an AS2630. 2630. What does that... What's different about that compared to the lower models? Just have better pickups and pots and stuff? Uh, no. Well, I mean, the way I got into that was uh, I, was, I did my whole school on, on uh, first I got accepted on a Stratocaster, on my SRE Stratocaster. Mm-hmm. And because it's a people school, they told me right away, like, you're accepted and you can borrow money to buy a real guitar. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that, was, that was the head of the department. So, uh, and uh, then later that year, I found a Gibson ES175. So, I mean, it doesn't get more sort of politically correct bebop than that. <laughs> so that was the, that. So I did my whole school on that. And then I realized when I when I was kind of uh, when I was my last year, I started trying to get that to sound like a semi-hollow. I just didn't realize that that was what I was trying to do. So that, that started the whole search. And then the first thing I did, because I was kind of cautious about it, was that I bought an Epiphone for 300 bucks mm. second hand. The dot or something? What? Like an Epiphone dot? No, an Epiphone Sheraton. Okay, yeah, I have one of yeah. those too. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a great instrument, especially mm-hmm. for the price of it. Like, it's crazy. And then I had some other pickups put into that. And actually, that was my main guitar. I did quite a few albums on that also. And then when I decided that now I've played on this 300 euro guitar for a long time, that maybe maybe there's something that maybe actually something is better than this. So I needed to try that out. And then a, um, a colleague of mine was selling the Ibanez. And it's, it's, just, it's so random. But then I just tried it and I was like, wow, this is a good guitar. And he didn't want that much money for it. It was like, what was it, 1200, 1100, mm-hmm. something like this. And then, then I bought that. And now, now that's what I'm playing. And I, and, but, it has to be said that that is a that's an incredible instrument i think i really think so i also heard from other people and i now i again i uh, later actually two years ago i thought maybe there's something better i have to check it out so i got a, a gibson mm-hmm. es335 from uh, from 69 i think it is mm. and that's also a great instrument it has a lot of vibe and stuff like that but it's not better than ibanez in my opinion yeah i I've got I've got my Gibson ES335 that I, I love this thing, but uh, it's uh, I've played the Ibanezes and I I do really like them as well. They've got a little different. The neck feels different on the Ibanezes. They, yeah. It seems like the Ibanezes are a little a little faster. Like the radius is bigger. Yeah, I think so too. But that's also a difference between my my guitars from the 70s, and it's it's a closer. It's closer to like a 60s uh, ES335. So I've also had students who had the, the AS200, like the Schofield guitar, mm-hmm. and they are more sort of in between the, the Gibson thing and the Ibanez flatter neck and, and, and more sort of straight thing. And, and so, yeah, for me, it's also, I, I like the older neck styles as well, like, like with the Gibson. Yeah, I, I think that on the Ibanez, your the wings are a little bit, they're cut a little bit farther out. Because I know when I try yeah. to get up in here, sometimes I get my hand gets stuck in the in I'm the, not, the yeah. ear or the wing of the guitar. Yeah, I'm I noticed that too with with the with my ES335 that it, the axis is not as good. 
Yeah. But, I mean, you don't play a ton up there anyway. It kind of sounds just thin and tinny, <laughs> if, unless you have a lot of distortion on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tend to use mine. I mean, that's what I love so much about the, the semi-hollow body. Most of my performances, I'm performing a variety of genres, and I they're not jazz gigs, per se. But that way I can go back and forth and I can play. I can get any sound I need over out of a semi-hollow body. I can go yeah. from overdriven rock and roll to country twang to to a nice warm jazz tone. True, very true. But then you also have to have but then you don't have really heavy strings, I guess. No, I use I use lighter strings. Yeah. I also find that it when I switched to lower strings the, my hands felt so much better. Oh, yeah. yeah. playing for hours. I can't go back. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I, I came from I came from always having this because I had this huge Stevie Wan period. So I was always just trying to figure out how to get heavier strings because mm -hmm. I was convinced that that was just better. So I was really used to that when I went to jazz. I never really went went anywhere down. So that the 13s were just easy to go with. And then the, the difference between, of course, like a Stratocaster with with heavy strings, because I had 13s on it when I when I went to, to jazz school, is of course different than a Gibson with 13s. They're a lot easier to play. But now I have to say, like when I play pop gigs and stuff, I also use 11s. It's, it's, I can't can't handle 13s for for bending and stuff like that. Yeah, that's so funny. 11s probably feel so snappy to you, whereas 11s now they it's pretty close. Okay. Uh, but also, I mean, a thing that I found was it's it also really matters how the set is is made because very often when you buy heavy strings, it's kind of made and geared towards being tuned down. And that means that the lower strings, the thicker strings are going to be like really heavy. And actually, if you have so the, the strings that I use from Sonocore and also if you have tomastic strings, then the set is is made differently so that the, the lighter strings are heavier and the, the thicker strings are lighter. And that means that the overall tension of the guitar is different. And that makes a huge difference difference in how it plays. I find that. Yeah. I put some heavy heavy gauge strings on my acoustic guitar for tunings like dad gad tuning and I hated it. <laughs> I took them I left them on I played for about an hour and then I was like nope. <laughs> it was also you know it pulled my neck it was starting to bend in my neck and I was like I don't want to deal with all this. My guitar no. set up nicely strings. Well, but, uh, that was also how I found out because I was trying out different sorts of strings and I was using the domestic at the time and then I was just like ordering stuff. I was like, oh, I'm just going to order five different sorts of strings and they just have to be 13s and it's going to be fine. And then I put on the first set of 13s, not thinking about the fact that the domestic actually were like set up differently and, and were really, so I put them on and then immediately my neck was just starting to bend. I was like, oh, uh, no, that's, no, this, we're off. Yeah. <laughs> can't do this now. <laughs> and there you have it. Another episode in the bag. Join us next Thursday morning as we get into part two with Jens Larson on Fret Buzz the Podcast. As always, if you like the show, hit that subscribe button. And to let you guys in on a little bit of what's going on, um, things are changing around Fret Buzz the Podcast. I'm not really sure what the future holds, but do me a favor. If you really like the show and you find value in what goes on here at Fret Buzz the Podcast, head on over to iTunes and leave a review. Let other people know why you like the show and the value that you get from it. Um, that would help me out a lot and let me know whether I should continue with the show in the future. The reality is, is this does take a lot of time, a lot of effort, and um, I've never made a dime from the show. <laughs> um, it's, um, it's a passion of mine. Um, obviously, you're more than welcome to head on over to patreon.com and support me there. Um, but nonetheless... Um, 
two years ago, I made a New Year's resolution to make a podcast, and I've done so. I've enjoyed the process. I love talking to all of these people, and I've learned so much along the way. I hope you have too. Um, So yeah, do me a favor and head on over to iTunes, write a review, let me, let everyone know the value, um, and that'll give me an idea whether or not I should continue with this this project. I would love to continue with it and keep on going it and building it and making our community a much bigger community. Uh, If you get the chance, share an episode. Find one that you really enjoy, share it with all your friends, and let everyone know. Um, So yeah, I appreciate you. I'm so glad that you're listening. It means the world to me that you are listening and you're spending your time with me. Um... But yeah, thank you. And with that, we'll sign off and we'll meet up again next Thursday for part two with Jens Larson on Fret Buzz, the podcast. Thanks, guys, for listening. <laughs>